Well, we're going to be wrapping up our study of Samson today, but obviously we've got a lot longer to go in the book of Judges, and it's only going to continue getting more and more interesting from here. And uh, what we've seen of the Judges so far, if you were to just kind of zoom out and look at the Judges as a whole, one of the, one of the tragedies of this story, of this narrative, is that the judges have becoming have been becoming just progressively more and more and more like the world. And so when we see that Israel is enslaved to their enemies, we shouldn't be too surprised because they've become so worldly, they are indistinct from their enemies. One of the great truths that we've seen in the book of Judges and that we see throughout all of Scripture uh, is that some of the most uh, character-building times in our lives, one of, one, of the, uh, one of the greatest things that God can do in our lives is discipline us because it makes us more like Him. And one of the great truths of all of Scripture and uh, among the most courage and, and faith-instilling doctrines of the Christian faith is that God, because of His faithfulness to His people, not because of our faithfulness, but because of His faithfulness to His people, He will take drastic and radical measures to bring His people into submission and obedience to Him. And there are few things in all of life, in all of creation, that are as incredible to consider as the lengths and the widths and the depths and the heights that God will go to in order to transform his people, the redeemed. John Bunyan was an author in the 17th century who gained a lot of fame for his classic work titled Pilgrim's Progress. You guys have probably heard of that one. He wrote a lesser-known book, uh, though, called The Holy War, which I uh, started reading this week. This is a fantastic book. It's, it's fiction, but it's, it's an allegorical work. Uh, it's similar to C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where, you know, everything has kind of a, a representation. Everything means something in there. And so in The Holy War, in this book, Bunyan writes about how this great king named King Shaddai made a perfect town called Mansoul, and he reigned over it peacefully and completely But that peace didn't last long because a servant who had been exiled from King Shaddai's kingdom named Diabolus takes it upon himself to come in and develop this plan to take over Mansoul. And the book is about the lengths to which King Shaddai will go in order to redeem and to restore and to re-fortify the town of Mansoul, and he just pulls out all the stops. Every, uh, every trace of Diabolus's presence and, uh, and reign over Mansoul must be removed and replaced in a way that honors King Shaddai. The Nazis. The Nazis were famous for their, uh, their campaigns, their propaganda campaigns. You can find museums with relics of their posters. If you go to, uh, to Europe, you can find the old concentration camps. You can walk in. You can see where all these people were murdered. All these uh, millions of Jews were murdered. And we can be thankful that when World War II ended, the Nazi party was completely decimated. They were completely done away with. All the power that they had was forcefully removed from their grasp. After all, how much of a complete victory would we call it 
if there was still one square inch of land that they were reigning over. And who would tolerate such a thing? But just as we would have no tolerance for the Nazi party holding even the slightest bit of power, and just like King Shaddai in the Holy War had no tolerance for Diabolus having even the slightest amount of power in the town of Mansoul, so too God is working in his people to restore them, to redeem them, to redeem every aspect of their lives, not just their Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, but to to redeem every single corner of their lives. And this is the wonderful and glorious and sometimes painful work of sanctification. Everything, everything has to be brought under submission to his authority in the lives of his people. And he will go to incredible lengths to ensure that this happens and that his work in his people will be completed. Now, as we continue our study in the book of Judges this morning, and more specifically our study of the life of Samson, we've seen that God gave Samson an unconditional calling, a a, a calling from conception, from before his conception in the womb. His call was to start the work of freeing God's people from enslavement to the Philistines. And yet for the majority of his story, for the majority of his neighborhood, uh, of, of his narrative, for how many chapters, you know, three chapters so far, he's been completely godless. He's been completely faithless. He's been self-reliant. He's always done, always done what seems right in his own eyes and has always been driven by what he craves the most. That's the way it works. We're, We're driven by what we crave the most. We go after what we crave the most. But what has Samson craved? He's craved anything but God. And it was this type of living that eventually led to his downfall. He was captured by the enemy because of his own disobedience unto God. The Philistines used a a hit man or hit woman named Delilah uh, to get the supposed secret of Samson's strength, which was his hair, supposedly. And so this woman, Delilah, saw to it that his hair was cut off. But we saw that this wasn't really the secret of his strength. The secret of his strength was the Lord. It looked, may have looked on the surface like his hair was the secret of his strength, but the real secret was the strength of the Lord, who would strengthen Samson with the Spirit of God to do miraculous feats. But after living this life of sinful indulgence over and over and over, unrepentantly, God finally handed Samson over to his sin, to be disciplined. And Samson was finally captured when he was no longer strengthened by the Spirit of the Lord. And if the story, if the story had just ended there, let's be honest, we wouldn't have a whole lot to be encouraged by. We wouldn't have a whole lot of reason to believe that Samson ever had legitimate faith in God, other than the fact that his name is found in the book of Hebrews. Now, if it weren't for these final 11 verses in chapter 16 of Samson's story, we'd have to wonder what he is doing in the faithful Hall of Fame in Hebrews. But because of what happens in these 11 verses, because of what happens after his capture, as soon as the discipline by God starts, we can know that he rightfully belongs in the faithful Hall of Fame because we see that God is not done with Samson. In fact, God's going to do his greatest work in Samson 
while he's captured. What a beautiful thing it is to see that God doesn't just give up on his children when they repeatedly fall into disobedience. Rather, he disciplines them. He disciplines them, not out of wrath, but out of love for them, the same way an earthly father would discipline their kids, not because he's so mad, but because there are some character lessons that need to be learned. So God disciplines his children because God not only hates and condemns all sin, but he also loves and rescues his people from their sin. And so the story picks up in verse 21. And we read this, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Now, I've pointed this out before, and I'll point it out again. It's kind of fitting. It's, it's ironic that this man who has always done what seems right in his own eyes, who's never stopped in his entire life, to think about it from the perspective of the only eyes that matter, which are God's eyes, would have his eyes gouged out. It's ironic. It's fitting. It's, it's, we might call it poetic justice. And we would look at this situation. We'd look at his condition, having his eyes gouged out, and we'd think, man, what, what a curse. It must be such a curse to have your eyes gouged out. But the truth is that this is a blessing. These are the eyes that led Samson to his downfall. These are the eyes that lustfully gazed upon so many, so many women throughout his life. And this should remind us of something that our Lord Jesus once said. People love the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the great things that Jesus sought to communicate and accomplish that day was to let people know that God takes sin very, very seriously. And so therefore, he expects, expects his people, he expects us to take sin very, very seriously. And so Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The truth that Jesus is revealing here is that God is very concerned about the personal holiness of his people. And it isn't just about external actions because anybody, anybody can put on a show Uh, Last week, the missionary that we had here, he said that in Japan, they have different words for your presentation self and your normal self. It's easy for anybody to put on a presentation self, and God isn't concerned about that. In fact, I'd say God might have something, uh, some objections to having uh, this, this whole thing with putting on an appearance because we can fool ourselves with it. No, what God's concerned with is what's going on in a person's heart. What's our attitude? What's our motivation? What do we desire? What is driving us? That's what God is concerned with because he knows. He knows that if you're lusting for someone, really you're just a moment's opportunity away from acting on that desire since our actions are dictated by our affections. And so Jesus continues with a pretty radical statement, verse 29, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
sobering, isn't it? That's really sobering. And by the way, he's not really telling us literally to gouge your right eye out if it's causing you to sin because you still got your left eye. You know, uh, if, you're, if you're lusting with your right eye, you're surely lusting with your left eye too. Uh, and even if we had no eyes, we'd still have an imagination. And in the same way, Jesus wasn't literally instructing his followers to cut off his hands if their hands are causing them to sin. Instead, what he's doing here is he's using graphic imagery to tell us that it's better to suffer from temporary affliction than it is to suffer eternal affliction. In other words, if I can just be straightforward about it, it's better whether you're a man or a woman that you would lose an eye than that you would either read or go see a movie like Fifty Shades of Grey. It's better that you would lose an eye than that you would pick up the latest issue of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. It's better that you would lose an eye than that you would go to that website that nobody knows you go to. It would be better to lose an eye than it would be to be drawn into sexual debauchery by anything that stimulates you to elicit sexual desires. But the truth is that neither our eyes nor our hands cause us to sin. So what causes us to sin? What we desire. What we decide in our hearts to desire the most, that's what causes us to sin. But Jesus is using the most graphic, the most radical, the most extreme language and illustration he possibly could to tell us that from God's perspective, sin is serious, serious business. God takes it seriously. And yet, if we're being honest with ourselves... Every one of us would have to confess that far too often we take our sin far too casually. So Jesus isn't saying gouge out your eyes. Rather, he's saying you need to understand the importance of passing on the opportunity to have your illicit sexual desires stirred within you, whether that's by a movie, whether that's by a magazine, a TV show, a website, a person walking down the street, your imagination, you know, wherever. Whatever. This is why Paul said, flee youthful passions. He didn't say, don't touch it. He didn't say, check it out, and if it doesn't seem right, maybe walk away. He says, run away. Run away as fast as you can. And just ask Russell Wilson or Pete Carroll. Don't try to make a pass at someone when you should just run. Right? Wasn't that the lesson that we learned in the Super Bowl? (laughs) And so what Jesus is doing here is he's just going straight to the root of the issue. He's not interested in just taking off a couple twigs. He's interested in going down to the root of the issue. If you want to get rid of weeds in your yard, what do you do? You dig up the root, right? Because if you don't dig up the root, it's just going to grow right back. Likewise, if you want to get rid of sin... God has to dig down to the depths of our hearts and show us where our actions are rooted. Show us which desires in our hearts our actions are rooted in. It's the desires of our hearts that he's going after. So there is no room for being casual about our sin. But God will work 
to transform his people. He won't just give up on his people. He'll work to transform his people, which often means disciplining the person who refuses to obey, disciplining the person who refuses to submit an area of their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So it's ironically appropriate that Samson would have his eyes gouged out But it's also ironically appropriate that he would be punished by being forced to grind at the mill, considering that he burned down all of the grain fields of the Philistines. Now, this was typically a job, grinding at the mill was typically a a job that would be done by uh, one of two things, prisoners or animals, uh, or both, combination of both. And so thus it seems at least possible that Samson has become something of a circus act doing the work of donkeys with other donkeys walking in circles behind a donkey, which means constantly walking in the mess that a donkey would leave behind it. He's being made a fool of. Now, before we continue, we can't overlook the fact that this is the first time in the entire book of Judges that one of the judges, one of the people whom God called and raised up to lead and deliver his people This is the first time one of the judges has been defeated. Samson's remembered, and he's recognized for his strength, but we've seen that the reality is that he was the weakest. He was actually the weakest of all the judges. He was also the most worldly. And yes, I would say there's a correlation there. But there are three specific metaphors that the Bible gives us throughout Scripture about man's, to describe man's condition apart from, from God. Number one, the Bible tells us that apart from God's grace, we are slaves. We are spiritually slaves to sin. Don't miss the fact that Samson is now literally, physically, a slave. Number two, the Bible tells us that apart from God's grace, we are spiritually blind. And now Samson is literally and physically blind. Number three, the Bible tells us that apart from God's saving and redemptive work of regeneration, we are spiritually dead. Now, Samson is not literally and physically dead yet, but he's basically a dead man walking. But Samson, upon his capture, definitely fits two of the three main biblical metaphors which Scripture gives us to give us an image of the unregenerate man. He's blind, but he's about to see more clearly than he's ever seen in his life. He's a slave but he's more free than he's ever been. Let's continue, verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Let's just stop there because there's a lot of confusion about this verse because it might seem on the surface like the author's trying to tell us he's getting his hair back so he's going to have his strength back, but we've already seen that's not the case. We already know that Samson's hair wasn't really the secret of Samson's strength. We know that it was the Lord himself who was the source of Samson's strength. The Lord had, uh, had strengthened his people in battle throughout, throughout the book of Judges, even using as few as 300 under Gideon. But with Samson, the Lord has shown that he could defeat vast armies with just one. He didn't need 300. He didn't need 3,000. He didn't need three. He could just use one if he wants. So it wasn't because of that one man's hair that this one man 
would be able to defeat vast armies. It was because the Lord was with them. So if the secret of Samson's strength was not his hair, why is the author telling us that Samson's hair is starting to grow back? Because that's what hair does for, for most people. I don't include myself in that group. It, it does grow back on my chin, you know, if I shave it. So why is he telling us that? The reason is actually unbelievably simple. It's because we're supposed to see that the Philistines let him grow his hair back out. They weren't so far removed from him that they didn't know, that they never noticed that his hair was growing back. They would still have been under the impression that the secret to his strength was the fact that prior to having his hair cut, he'd never had a haircut before. But what we're supposed to understand here is that in their minds, in the minds of the Philistines, any vow that Samson had made with his deity, any vow that Samson had made with his God was broken. And so it was over and done with. And so what this shows us is that the Philistines have a really distorted understanding. They they don't understand at all how God works. They think it would be contingent upon the person, not upon the God. They had no understanding of the fact that with Jehovah, grace abounds to even the chief of sinners, even the worst. They never would have guessed that God's strength is actually made perfect in the weakness of his people. And that just seems foolish to the unregenerate mind. But that's what we see in Scripture. In our weakness, he is strong. You see, Samson's status as a Nazarite never hinged on his faithfulness to God. Because he broke his vows time after time after time. And God, God stayed faithful to him. God is the one who called Samson. And by the way, what did God say the duration of his reign as a judge would be? What did he say about his calling? Back in chapter 13, verse 7, the angel of the Lord told Samson's mother, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. It was never going to be contingent upon Samson's faithfulness. This was God's sovereign and unconditional decree that Samson was going to fulfill his calling to the Nazarite vow until the day of his death, whether he agreed to the terms and conditions or not, and whether he obeyed or not. The Philistines, like the world, can only fathom a God who is conditional, a God that can be manipulated by food or by just being pleased with a person's uh, personal efforts or works. The idea of there being a God who is sovereign and freely offers his grace to people who would otherwise just be dead in their sins and unfaithfulness is completely foreign to the natural mind. And so the fact that Samson's hair is growing back isn't supposed to make us think, oh boy, he's going to have his strength back. Rather, it's to show us that the Philistines, like the world, have no understanding of God. And that they think that because the vow is broken, the deal is over. We're supposed to see here that God reveals himself to be totally and completely unlike all the false gods, all the pagan gods, all the idols of the culture. God is completely different from all of them. His work is sovereign. And it isn't contingent upon the obedience or the faithfulness of his people. It's contingent upon him. 
and his grace. Let's continue, verses 23 to 25. Now the lords, or rulers, depending on which translation you have, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, in other words, when they're drunk, and when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And before we continue, one of the things that we need to understand here is that God is not as interested in saving his people physically as he is with saving them spiritually. First things first. So this is more about God saving Israel from false gods like Dagon than it is about God saving Israel from physical oppression to the Philistines. Dagon was one of the main ancient pagan gods and was maybe even more highly regarded than Baal. Uh, Archaeology has discovered that in, in certain regions, in certain towns, the temples that were built to Dagon were actually considerably larger than the temples built to Baal. So on the surface, on the surface here, it looks like this false god, this idol, has won the day. And so the leaders, the rulers of the Philistines, they're so confident in their victory over Jehovah that they've all gathered together in this temple to a false god. And as their celebration begins, they think that it would be a good idea to bring Samson out in order that they can be entertained by him. What they want to do is they want to mock him. They all know what he's done. And they just want to mock him. They want to mock God. They want to mock Jehovah in defeat. Verses 26 and 27. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. What does it mean to entertain? We don't know. We just can gather the fact that he's being mocked and God is being mocked. And it's hard to imagine how enormous this temple must have been. But on the inside, you have all the rulers, all the leaders of the Philistines gathered. And there were about 3,000 men and women gathered on the roof of the temple. I mean, this place has got to be enormous. And I can imagine, I I would imagine that these 3,000 men and women who are up on the roof, these were all prestigious, prominent, powerful people in their society, given that the leaders, you know, they're they're whining and dining with with the big dogs. They're rubbing elbows with the powers that be. I mean, we have events in our country where you can, you know, find lots of our nation's leaders gathered all in one place. And if you want to get in there, yeah, good luck with that. You have to be pretty close You have to be pretty close with some of these powerful people, with a lot of these powerful people. So there's a good chance that these 3,000 people are rich, they're they're powerful, they are highly respected in their culture. And so Samson says to the young man who was obviously drunk, (laughs) he says to this, this kid who's leading him around, let me rest against the pillars of the temple. 
And at this point, Samson speaks to God for just the second time in his entire narrative. The first time was after he destroyed all these Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, and he was thirsting to death, and he basically rebuked God, demanding that God give him water. But those were the days, those were the days when Samson was filled with pride. Those were the days when Samson sought his own glory, his own honor. He was overflowing with faithlessness when he demanded that God give him water, and he drank it thanklessly. But that was then, and this is now. Samson has been humbled before the Lord, and he's had a lot of time to think about the decisions that he's made in his life. And so this time, he humbly prays out to God. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Throughout his life, from, from as soon as we met him until he was captured, Samson took his strength for granted. He felt entitled to it. He didn't understand that it was grace. He didn't fully grasp that the victory was never his, but that it was always God's. But even though he's blind, he sees clearly now that it was the unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace of God all along that he had strength. And so he, d- he knows that he doesn't deserve, he hasn't earned to be heard by God. And so he starts this prayer by calling on God by name and just asking God to remember him. This is just a humble request for God to turn his ear to him, just and remember him one more time. Just a humble request. He says, remember me. Because he knows that what he deserves is to be forgotten. So it's a humble plea, and the fact that Samson is now filled with faith is demonstrated in the fact that Samson is calling, he's yelling out to God in this temple dedicated to this false god. And we can only imagine that that made the people laugh all the more, that they found that all the more entertaining, that they laughed hysterically to see Samson calling upon the name of his God. And then what does he say? Oh God, just please strengthen me just one more time. Whose strength is he attributing it to? God. For the first time, we see that he doesn't think it's his. He understands it's God's. We, we catch a glimpse of how clearly Samson is seeing, even in his blindness. He sees that his strength all along was really the strength of the Lord given to him. He realizes how dependent he really is and always has been on the grace of God. He's blind, but he sees. He's enslaved, but he's more free than he's ever been in his entire life because the lust that he had for women and the desire that he had for power and fame no longer rule over him, no longer set the course for his actions. It's the grace of God that he desires the most. 
It's the grace of God that he's finally seeking. Now, on the surface, we'd say that it looks like this is probably the worst place that Samson could possibly be. But because of God's grace, it's the best place for him to possibly be. Let's continue. Let's wrap up this chapter. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead among, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Now Samson couldn't have had any idea whether God would honor his request. He he didn't have any idea whether God would actually remember him. But this is the trust that he now has in God. The Bible is, is pretty clear about one thing, and that is that saving faith, real legitimate faith, is never stagnant. It acts on that faith. James tells us that faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean that we're saved by works. We're not saved by works. We're saved for works. We're not saved by our actions. Rather, our our actions demonstrate that our faith is a legitimate, real, living faith. And so in Samson's case, what we see here is legitimate faith. And that's why he steps forward and he starts pushing at the pillars. He doesn't know if God's going to grant his last request. He finally recognizes that he relies entirely on the grace of God. And that it's all God's strength. It's not his own. You see, this is the most important moment in Samson's entire life because he's finally fulfilling his calling to A, begin God's work of freeing his people from the Philistines and B, to be used of God until the day of his death. And Samson goes out in a blaze of glory with remarkable faith. And in a lot of ways, Samson's death points us to another judge, the greatest judge of all, the God of all creation, Jesus Christ. Samson's downfall was precipitated by his disobedience to God, and he shows us our need for a judge who would be perfectly obedient. The Lord Jesus is the one who constantly, without failing, lived for nothing but the glory of God, doing the will of the Father. But unlike Samson, it wasn't Jesus' own disobedience which necessitated his death. It was ours. It was our disobedience that made his death necessary. Every one of us, every single one of us has disobeyed. Every single one of us has sinned. Every one of us deserves nothing but death. That's what we've earned. And the only way for us to have life is if God himself would take the wrath that we deserve upon himself. And this is the wonderful truth of the gospel. This is the wonderful work of Christ on Calvary, that he bore the wrath that we deserved. In his death, God 
achieved victory over the Philistines, over Samson's enemies. And likewise, in his death, Christ achieved victory over his enemy, the evil one. And he achieved victory over the greatest enemy of all, death. In his death, Samson fulfilled his calling, which was to begin the deliverance of God's people, according to Judges chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus, on the other hand, achieved final, ultimate, and eternal salvation, rescue, and deliverance for his people once and for all. The author of Hebrews tells us that by God's will, we have all been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. So just as Samson was betrayed by someone who had pretended to be a friend, Delilah, Samson foreshadows the betrayal of our Lord Christ by Judas Iscariot. Just as Samson was handed over to Gentile oppressors, he foreshadows that the Lord would be handed over to Gentile oppressors. Samson foreshadows the mockery that Christ would endure as he carried out the Father's perfect will in perfect submission humility, and obedience. Because of Samson's work, because of that one act of obedience at the end of his life, there would be a sharp alienation, a separation, a breaking away between Israel and the Philistines and the idolatrous culture that they had become a part of. Because of Christ's obedience to the will of the Father, we now walk on earth as aliens who are first and foremost citizens of heaven who are longing for a better land, a better place, walking with the Lord himself in heaven. Our calling is to be set apart, just as Samson's work caused the Israelites to be set apart. Christ, in his death, gave us reason, made us separate, set apart, holy unto the Lord. Because of Samson's work, God's people were freed from worshiping the idols of the culture. Because of Christ's work on the cross, God's people are freed from the penalty of our idolatry, which is death and eternal damnation in hell. In Samson's weakness, he was strong. He had to be humbled so that he could be strong. Likewise, Jesus became weak in order to become strong. He humbled himself as a man. Paul tells us that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. God went to incredible lengths to ensure the justification, the redemption, the forgiveness of his people. And he continues to go to incredible and unfathomable lengths to ensure the transformation of his people into the likeness of Christ. There's one enormously significant difference between Samson and Jesus Christ, however. And that is that with his death, Samson's reign ended as judge at 20 years. His story was over. But even though Jesus died, even though he was buried, he rose again on the third day by the same power, by the way, that strengthened Samson, and by the same power that lives in God's people today. Paul said this to the Romans. We'll wrap it up with this. Romans chapter 8, verses 13, or 11 to 13. 
if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through, through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul isn't saying that you can put to death the deeds of the body on your own, apart from God's strength, apart from God's presence in your life. He's not saying that you can earn your salvation or become worthy of eternal life by just trying your hardest not to sin. What he's saying is that by the same power of the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, who is the same Holy Spirit that strengthened Samson, so too we are strengthened to do what? To overcome sin in our lives. God is very, very concerned about the personal holiness of his people because he takes sin very, very seriously. But he doesn't just leave it to us to do the work. He doesn't just leave us on our own in our personal battles with sin. Just like it was impossible for Samson to perform his his feats of, of physical strength on his own, so too it's impossible for any of us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh on our own. It's as impossible as a dead person causing himself to raise up to life again. It's as impossible as a blind person making, a, you know, making the decision that they're just going to start seeing all of a sudden. It is impossible. It's impossible. But the power of God changes everything. The power of the Holy Spirit living in us gives us the strength to wage war against sin and that power of the, of the Holy Spirit dwells within each of us who, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, have been redeemed. Not because we deserve it, not because we've worked so hard to earn it, not because we've been as good as we possibly can, but because God's grace flows out to his people in greater abundance, more plentifully than any of us could ever, ever possibly exhaust. And how do you respond to that? You live for God. You put to death the works of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you give him the glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We thank you for bearing the wrath of God against sin for us. We see, Lord, as we look at this text, how dependent Samson was on your grace. And Lord, my prayer is that we would see ourselves there too. That we develop a deeper understanding of how incredibly dependent we are on your grace. We know, Lord, that without it, every single one of us would be separated from you eternally. Every single one of us would fall away from you. Every single one of us would be faithless. But we thank you, Lord, that your grace is abundant and flows out to even the chief of sinners. Humble us, Lord, that we may see our need for your grace. 
Humble us, Lord, that we may do your work and seek your glory rather than our own. Humble us, Lord, that we may serve you and glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.